are you guys doing today? Um, and, and really, I mean, how, how is your week going? Just want to get a little feedback from you guys. Like, you know, a one, I'd rather not think about this last week, a five, kind of like, yeah, I'd do that week again. That was a good week. Or, I don't know, three, kind of a mixed bag. How are you guys doing? One, three, I see a few fives, five, three. Wow. No twos or ones? Oh, wait, I saw, okay, yep. <laughs> Good deal. Uh, all right, well, normally we would do something like this or you would see something like this at the end. Um, I'm going to use it for more of a fun purpose, try to get a little interaction and maybe a little help uh, from you guys this morning. So with, uh, with every head bowed and every eye closed, I have a few questions for you guys. So, yep, you can just... Close your eyes for a little bit. I do want to know, uh, raise your hand if this applies to you. But uh, yeah, raise your hand if you have heard of or eaten cotton candy grapes. Wow, I am behind. I just found about that yesterday. Okay, um, all right. Uh, this next one, you got to think. It's an either or. Uh, we've got movies and TV shows. Not anyone in specific, just in general. If you had to... Uh, pick an entertainment route. Would you prefer movies or TV shows? Raise your hand if it's movies. More of the movie people. Okay, hands down, thank you. Uh, TV show. Wow, all right, heavy on TV show, I like it. Uh, last one, and really you don't have to raise your hand for this one unless you're like, ah, I got nothing to hide. Um, but this is hitting at home a little bit more. Uh, I'm curious who walked into the room this morning and within a second or two, can recall something heavy on their heart, be it a decision or a mistake that they've made in the recent past or even long time ago that they regret and hold on to that's heavy right now. You don't have to raise your hand for that, but if you want to, I'm curious, who am I speaking to? Okay, thank you. Uh, you can open your eyes here. Um, Appreciate that. The cotton candy grapes has nothing to do with what I'm going to be talking about. I, I really just tried those for the first time yesterday. That's wild. Is that, would you call that a genetically modified organism? Is that a GMO? Okay. Is that the definition now? New gold standard of GMO. All right. But uh, I did want to know about the movies and the shows, though. That was a very important question. Um, I, I think I would be more a movie guy. I like a well-framed movie, good story within an hour or two. Um, what I would identify, though, as uh, where movies fail in comparison, usually, to a good TV show, is uh, you, you get invested in characters, I think, in a TV show so much more than you would a standalone movie. Now, maybe a series of films, that's a different story, but to do the same amount of character development and relationship development in a movie, uh, you got to be doing a great job to even come close to what a show can do. Whether or not you like the shows, I'm not asking that. I'm just I'm asking you to imagine or pretend if Seinfeld had been a film, like a standalone film. N none of us would know who Jerry Seinfeld is if, if that was the case, or The Office. If, if they had just come out with a movie in 2004, The Office movie, I don't know. It wouldn't be special to us because we wouldn't have this depth of understanding of these relationships, which makes it so you know, fun for gen most shows in general. I bring that into context this morning because I want you to think about 
a particular show, whether you like it or not, um, The Chosen, okay? Uh, you can raise your hand with everyone to see for this. If you've seen it, how many people are able to connect to this? Okay, a handful. Uh, the Chosen, not going to get into whether or not they're doing the perfect job uh, depicting Jesus. That's a, that's a huge challenge if you're ever going to make a film or show about Jesus. And not going to get into that this morning. I don't want to get hung up on that. Something that I think is really cool that a show like that is able to do, which I've never seen in my lifetime. I'm a pastor's kid. I've seen a lot of Jesus movies and whatever. But something that they have done, which I really appreciate, is an understanding of depth in the relationships between the disciples. Whether or not they're getting all the little details right about like, oh, Matthew would have said this and Simon would have said that. I'm not worried about that. I'm just saying when you watch that, the, the, the heart strings it's able to pull, I think are very, very accurate in understanding that these 12 guys that did ministry together with Jesus for a long time have very deep set relationships. Okay, I think it's phenomenal being able to watch something like that and just uh, understand that. If you have that show in your background and understanding, I want you to bring the depth of the relationships of the disciple into the context of this morning's reading, which I promise we'll get to. That's context piece number one, depth of relationship. The second context piece that I want you to understand is leading up to where we're at. We're going to read about the Garden of Gethsemane. Um, is understand that we're not at just some random point in the disciples' ministry with Jesus. We're at a really high, tense uh, climax of their ministry. Jesus and his time spent with these guys, they're at the apex of that before Jesus is about to go off and die. A lot of big things have just happened. Jesus rose Lazarus from the dead. It was a very, very big deal. Uh, Jesus came riding into Jerusalem on a donkey, pretty much invoking a prophecy that Israel's king someday would ride in on a donkey. That gets people excited. They're waving the branches around Hosanna, okay? Like, this is a really high, tense moment. This is not some neutral point in their relationship. They've spent three years, things are tense, and then finally, uh, if you want to get to where we're going, you can read... Mark 14, uh, verse 26. We'll start there. Just set up last context for the Garden of Gethsemane. Verse 26 in Mark 14. And they had sung a hymn, and they went out to the Mount of Olives. And Jesus said to them, You will all fall away, for it's written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. But after I'm raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter said to them, Even though they all fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, Truly I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he said emphatically, If I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. These people have had a lot of history together. They're at a very tense moment, very climactic place in their ministry together where their relationships should be tight and they have all just sworn before jesus emphatically we're not leaving you we're not leaving your side we're here to stay we're sticking with you jesus through this thick part of your ministry very next verse 
Take all of that into this before we read this. All right, verse 32. And they went to a place called Gethsemane. Gethsemane, thank you. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to uh, be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little further, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and found them sleeping and said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And he came a third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Next section, uh, verse 43. Immediately, while he was still speaking, Judas came out of the twelve, and with him a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now the betrayer had given them a sign saying, the one I kiss is the man. Seize him and lead him away under guard. And when he came, he went up with him um, at once and asked, or said, Rabbi, and he kissed him. And they laid hands on him and seized him. But one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Jesus said to them, have you come out against me as a robber? with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I was with you in the temple, teaching, and you did not seize me, but let the scriptures be fulfilled. And they left him and fled. Uh, Last two verses, bear this in mind. A young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body. And they seized him, but he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. Okay. Um, what are we going to do about all this? Uh, what just happened in this passage? We're not able to teach on all of it, but I'll do my best to summarize it. Three times Jesus goes off to pray, and three times he's asking his disciples to just pray with him, stay awake, be with me. This isn't a lesson on like never sleeping. Jesus isn't asking that. But all these disciples who just said, we are here with you through the thick of it, he's asking them to be there through the thick of it. But three times they fall asleep. Uh, We get to see a really cool insight into Jesus' desire for God's will to be done, even if it's not comfortable. I wish we had more time, just a whole other sermon to talk about this phrase, not my will, but your will be done. Uh, And then again, Jesus is going to surrender to the scriptures and just say, okay, the hour is here. Time for this thing to go down. Um, verse 38, you may be asking, like, what's the temptation Jesus is referring to when he says, Peter, watch that you don't fall into temptation? Maybe that's a temptation to, like, not sleep. But in the context of um, we're 
going to stick with you through this, and I'm not going to deny you, I would almost be inclined to believe that we're talking about a temptation to you know, avoid that. So Jesus is you know, telling Simon, you're going to fall away, but I, I think he's trying to um, help him be careful and, and aware of what he's doing here. Bear that in mind. Um, other things that happen in this. Why the secrecy? I struggled with this when I was younger. Why, is this, why the secrecy of all of this? Well, it helps to understand just how tense things have been, that, that the priests and, and the, the scribes, they can't just go in and grab Jesus right now. He's a really popular guy. If you go back to verse 1 and 2 in this chapter, it even says it was uh, two days before the Passover feast of unleavened bread, and the chief priests and scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. For they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. They've got to have an inside man to get this done without an uproar. They need to be able to seize Jesus in secrecy, if you will. Um, and then finally, just, yeah, you remember the contrast between we won't fall away from you, but then verse uh, 50, they all left him and fled, all of them. And, and, and this naked guy, too. We'll get to that in a little bit, I promise. But what's happening here, if I can just summarize it all, what I want to focus on is it's, it's failure. Just bear that word in mind, like failure. It has all fallen apart. These guys that have this deep relationship and commitment to Jesus Trouble shows, and they're gone. Like, this is one of the most disappointing passages in all of Scripture. There's a lot of disappointment in here, but I'd put this kind of at the top of my list of expectations gone awry. So we have disappointment, we have failure. Um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to look at a couple characters and their failures. Number one, not one of the two I'm pointing out, but, but Judas is, is very likely the, the greatest failure to point out here. Um, Peter, I would say, is next most obvious by name. He speaks for the group, and he's like, I'm not leaving you. And uh, I think it's Luke that says he's even the one that cut off the guy's ear, but he, he still takes off and then denies Jesus three times. I'm not going to get into Peter so much. You might get some of that next week. But Mark, the author even though he's not mentioned by name in this passage, I want to focus on him for a little bit and draw your attention to him. I'll tell you here why in a minute. But um, before I go into Mark at all, I do want to let you know there's a tie. There's a close relationship between Mark and Peter. Um, very explicitly in one of Peter's letters, First Peter, he references Mark, the author of this gospel, as a son. Um, not really his son, but like, up with that kind of title, like son, like he's that close to him. Um, you should also understand that a lot of, you know, the ancient church didn't really believe that Mark was a close following disciple of Jesus during his ministry. So how was he able to write a whole gospel account? Um, the, the tradition, the belief is that Peter entrusted his account of his following Jesus to Mark. To write it down. Um, that's just a you know, traditional church-held belief. Um, that is why we call this the Gospel of Mark, not Gospel of Peter. Um, so these people have a really close tie, but I'm going to sidestep just for a moment to ask you 
if you understand or know a different gospel, John, the gospel of John, does John ever reference himself as John in his own gospel? Yes, no, yes, no, maybe, I don't know. Uh, John really doesn't talk about himself in his gospel by name. He uses kind of a different title. He, whenever he's talking about himself and his gospel, he refers to himself as the disciple that Jesus loved. Okay, and that's not all that uncommon for a, an author of a piece of work to refer to themselves in a little bit of a different way. Um, what I'm presenting to you here is a, a belief that a lot of people have about Mark. It's not like gospel truth, so take this with a grain of salt. But here's an idea about the book of Mark, who is a literary genius. We don't have time to get into just how cleverly he frames his gospel as compared to the other gospel writers. But take a look at chapter 10. You've got this story starting in verse 17 about the rich young ruler. Not going to go into all the details about that story this morning, but I want you to catch a couple things. Uh, the rich young man... Um, after he tells Jesus, who asks, um, sorry, this guy asked Jesus, like, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Essentially, Jesus says, for you, um, how about you sell everything and come follow me? This guy gets an invitation, and this person walks away sad. Um, verse 21, Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, you lack one thing, sell all you have and come follow me. The other gospel accounts don't have that key little phrase in there. He loved him. What's Mark's unique perspective on this rich young man? The proposed theory is that this rich young man is Mark. And Mark gets an opportunity to follow Jesus. And then we come up to this seemingly random other young man within the Garden of Gethsemane. Why is this guy mentioned? Mark is a literary genius. He's not throwing weird details in by accident. Verse 51 and 52 of chapter 14, a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth on about his body, and they seized him, and he ran naked. The, the proposed theory is that this is Mark. Maybe even that he got the courage and took up Jesus' advice and sold everything, and, and was attempting to follow. Um, the implication being that he's just wearing a linen cloth. The other guess is that whoever this guy is just woke up at night and he's in his pajamas. Um, but if this is Mark, we've got two failures to identify here. One is that he misses the boat. He gets this invitation and opportunity to follow Jesus, and his possessions prove greater than that. The second is that he runs away. Like everyone else, he's, he's a coward, just like all the other disciples. A um, couple more solid facts, though, about Mark. There's this dynamic duo, this ministry team in Acts, Paul and Barnabas. Uh, you're probably familiar with them partnering and doing a lot. Mark gets to go with them on one ministry trip in Acts 16. I think it's to Jerusalem. In the next chapter, he's got the chance to go to this place called Pamphylia, and he abandons them. It doesn't seem to be a big deal. It just says, and Mark left, or something like that. But you go a couple chapters later, Paul and Barnabas are planning another trip, and Barnabas is like, hey, let's take Mark. 
And uh, Paul is like, no, <laughs> we're not doing that again. We are not bringing that guy. Um, if, if we're counting up his failures here so far, uh, he missed the boat to follow Jesus. He's a coward. Um, he is unreliable. And Paul and Barnabas get in such a big fight over this, they split up. This major ministry team divides. If we want to add this to Mark's failures, he's divisive. All of these things could be considered labels that Mark could take and just walk away with. And we'll get more into that, but I want to pause quick just for a story about a different Mark. If I, I don't really ever title messages. If I had to, it's tale of two marks, I guess. Um, so me, I, I want to talk just quickly uh, about me. Um, I love my job. That's something you should all know. I love getting to work in camp ministry. I would have never met my wife if it hadn't been for camp ministry. I love the chance to work with young leaders and send them out into a world with all these lessons that they learn at camp. Um, I love getting to create this environment where young people can come and focus on the gospel in an undistracted, you know, phone-free place. When does that get to happen? Ever. When are you ever going to be away from this in a week? I love that about camp. But everything I love about camp and my ministry and, and what, what, what I get to do, I shouldn't say my ministry, this ministry, is that um, it was almost all in jeopardy. And almost none of it ever came to anything uh, when I consider this really critical moment 13 years ago in 2010, you should know uh, I never enjoyed being a camper, kind of the irony of my job. Um, I had four younger sisters at home, and I just wanted to get out. I knew that <laughs> I really just wanted something else. Even camp was not as crazy as home. So Hidden Acres let me come wash dishes when I was like 14 years old. That was it. I was just trying to get out of the house, but it was fun. All through my high school summers, I had a blast, like, working there and, and just hanging out with friends. I worked in the dish room and the kitchen. It was, it was great. I loved it. Um, and then I apply again in 2010 to go back and, and work again another summer, you know, kind of my last summer before high school ends. I was looking forward to that. And um, I don't hear back. I don't hear back. I don't hear back. What's going on? I call... Uh, the program director, Ryan, and I'm like, uh, hey, Ryan, uh, what's up? And he's like, well, um, since you asked, uh, we're not inviting you back. I was like, oh, <laughs> what? <laughs> so I, I asked him about it, and, and he went into detail, and, and some of the things, some of the things hurt because it was like the recipient of some misunderstandings, but I can't say that about everything he pointed out. Um, he pointed out some very apt things. While I was there during high school, he observed that I was there for fun. I was missing out on the ministry of what that camp was about, and I was more or less there for myself. It was, it was a <clears throat> hard thing to learn. Um, other things is that, like, yeah, I, there had been some complaints from, like, the head cook that, like, I did not know what I was doing, which they were right. Should never have been in a kitchen. <laughs> but, but because of that, it was like the, the understanding that Mark is un, unreliable or unresponsible or not responsible. And yeah, just walked away from that embarrassed and my head low and like, what is going on? Um, 
I have kids now, so I cry all the time. But I was a 17-year-old boy at this point. I, was, I never cried about anything. I think I cried about this. I was just like broken. And I've got to tell you guys, that was maybe one of the best, most valuable summers of my life. How God got me out of my comfort zone. How he put me in uncomfortable positions and gave me this, this mirror to look at some kind of scary things that needed to be addressed and made obvious. And wow, I have got to, I can't take the credit for not walking away from that uh, bitter person, uh, but that would have been really easy had it not been for, for God and for a few key people in my life that helped me learn some lessons that I'm going to address here soon. But man, yeah, the uh, very thankful for that 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 happened. Um, so let's, let's get back to Mark, okay? Let's talk about him again. Last we left off, he's a coward, missed the boat, shameful, he ran away naked, um, divisive, a lot of, lot of labels we could put on Mark. Um, we get some interesting points, though, in a few of these letters that come out from Paul to these other churches after this debacle with Paul and Barnabas splitting up because of Mark. In Colossians, at the very end, to the Colossian church, Paul asks the Colossian church to, to greet Mark. We don't know what happened, but there seems to be some semblance of resolution to their relationship. He tells the Colossian church, you've, you've received instructions about Mark, I want you to greet him. Um, maybe not significant. Maybe we can conjecture all day about how that's not significant. But then you go to this little book in the New Testament called Philemon, and Philemon has this pretty big issue with a servant of his. And Paul's writing Philemon like, hey, this is how the gospel applies to your relationship mending and being rebuilt. And Paul makes a note about his fellow worker that Paul's identifying himself with his fellow worker, Mark. I think simply just by name mention, Paul is saying, hey, you got to work this out. Look, I have, like, Mark and I are even fellow workers after everything that's happened. And if that's not, you know, exciting or significant, sure, I'll grant you that, but look at one of Paul's very last letters right before he dies, 2 Timothy, sorry, 2 Timothy uh, whereas, like, 411, if you want to go there, Paul's in prison. He's, he's going to be executed. We know that's what's going to happen here. And he's writing to Timothy, and he's saying, only Luke is here with me, but I want you to get someone very specific. I want you to bring Mark to me. He is useful to my ministry. We don't know what exactly it was, but we should know that in the body of Christ... It is God's will that we would see restitution and, and redemption in these relationships. And it's hopeful to know that Mark didn't adopt these failures as part of his identity. Um, man. So, plagiarism is a bad thing, guys. You should know that. Um, and I'd, I'd be guilty of that if I didn't highlight, like, all those passages in the order I presented them to you and those points about Mark and what I'm about to share with you, these insights from it, 
Um, I, I can't take credit for them. Uh, I've just, I've been very blessed with a dad who's poured into my life and has taken the time to teach me the Bible and, and walk me through failures. Um, if, if any of you get anything out of this, I mean, know that this is God's word first, and that's where this good stuff comes from, but I just want you to know, like, I can't take credit for this. I've been blessed by a dad who's invested in me. Um, so I want to share with you what he has shared with me, different insights into scripture, and just life lessons in general. So the first one I want to bring to your attention is you've got this dynamic of success and failure, okay? Successful people, those that succeed, they're going to fail, but they're going to view failure as an opportunity. Failure is a learning opportunity to a successful person, whereas others are going to adopt failures in their life as a label. This is an identity piece to me. Now, what I just told you could be in, in any self-help book. I don't want to say, hey, this is your self-help. You can just go and take this, apply this to anywhere, and you can. This is valuable information for your career, for your hobbies, for your businesses. This is good. This is good practical stuff. View failures as opportunities. I mean, Thomas Edison is maybe one of our most popular like, examples of how often he failed before he got a project to work just right. Um, but I want you to take a look at this through, through uh, like a spiritual scripture lens and understand. We've, we've got to ask ourselves, what kind of successes do we want to apply this lesson to this morning? And uh, maybe you've heard the illustration of, like, where am I putting my ladder, my ladder of success? Some people have climbed the ladder of success all the way to the top just to find it was, you know, leaning against the wrong wall uh, kind of example. What wall do we want to set this ladder onto if we're talking about successes and failures this morning? And I would say I want you to focus your ladder of success this morning and ask yourself, when we're thinking about getting through failures, do we view our failures and successes as things that only better our chance to talk about God's work in our life and to bring glory to Him? Now you can throw a lot. You can lump a lot in with that. Our failures, our successes, our blessings, our resources, everything that you can look at and say, God has given me this, what could you be doing to serve others with it and to make God glorified, to share with people like, this is what God has done in my life. That's the ladder I want you to, that's the wall I want you to focus your ladder on this morning. And um, yeah, not just, it's a good lesson for lots of life, but that's the one, that's the one we're looking at this morning. Successful people view failure as an opportunity, a learning opportunity. Others will view it as a label. Second lesson is understanding the difference between guilt and shame. Um, I don't think guilt is a bad thing, okay? I think if you do something bad, if you did something wrong, and you have this, like, feeling of remorse about it, I actually, I, I hope we have that. I hope that's the spirit working in us, and I think it's a healthy thing. I think guilt is something God uses to lead us to a place of taking responsibility for our mistakes or sins and letting us say, I made a mistake. Key word here is I made. I made a mistake. Whereas I believe the enemy 
will point out your failures, your mistakes, your sins, and lead you to a place of shame that says, I am the mistake. Have we learned to identify the difference here between, yes, I made a mistake, but I'm not a mistake? Or is that what we've been telling ourselves for a really long time, that I am a mistake? Be really easy to just bring you to a place of comfort with what I'm telling you this morning and like, hey, don't let your failures, your mistakes, your sins just lead you to a place of identifying that as a label and a place of shame. But Paul made this really cool illustration in Philippians on the flip side about his successes as well. Paul lists this big list of, you know, everything great he's accomplished. And he said, I want you guys to know, I count this all as loss just for the opportunity for my identity to be found in who Jesus is, that I could be like him in his death and resurrection, not just the happy resurrection part, but like the scary kind of like death, dying to myself part, that Paul is just as easily able to to leave his his failures behind as he is his successes. We're going to talk about identity um, this next summer at at camp. I'm really excited about it, and I want kids to get this point. The terrible things that have happened in my life, whether they were my fault or someone else's, and the good things that I really like about my life, they are all subject and surrender to my identity and who I am in Christ. That's who I am. I am not a mistake. I am not the mistakes and failures that I've made. I am a follower of Jesus. I am a child of God. And yeah, I do make mistakes. We're going to learn from those. Okay? Please understand the difference between failure and success and guilt and shame. Um, Those have been really helpful in my life. I'll try to speed through why. Um, In in my job as someone who hires summer staff and gets to work with kids and see all sorts of cool things and problems too, it it helps me stay humble, I think, knowing that like my personal persona as this person who doesn't make mistakes, like that's not that's not what's on um, that's not what's expected. I hope, or that's not what I'm trying to show. I just want younger kids to see that, hey, we are believers first, and we make mistakes. It's, it, it really does away with needing to build up and prop up this prideful image of, like, here's the good mark, okay? It, it's something that has kept me humble, I hope. Um, there's, a, there's a verse I want to tie back in from our reading, as sad as the Garden of Gethsemane was. Um, Jesus says in verse 38, Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. Uh, The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. I know my flesh is weak. That's something that I know, and it's something that I'm kind of thankful for, and as much as this brings me back to Jesus on a regular basis. If my flesh was not weak, I think I'd be tempted to think that's not a very important thing to do. Um, another way that I found these things, these lessons helpful, is that uh, it, 
it really helped me understand God uses broken people. Have you ever heard the term, never trust a person without a limp? Is that a familiar term? Yes. No, don't trust someone without a limp, okay? Don't trust someone who's, who's you know, purporting themselves as like, I've never made a mistake, all right? Um, or has, just hasn't been old enough yet to make mistakes. Um, I, think, I think there's something to be said for showing that you have learned from mistakes you've made. And that's someone that I would be a little bit more inclined to trust than someone who doesn't have that on their record, all right? Uh, finally, these lessons in the Garden of Gethsemane especially um, keeps me a little more grounded when everything falls apart. I'd like to say I'm a calm person all the time. It's not true. But this is the truth I eventually work myself back to, that even Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, at the climax of his ministry, when he sees it all crumble, it, it helps me remain calm and just understanding, like, okay, God can use even this, um, even this group of cowards that abandoned him. He's going to build the church on, oh, Simon in particular, but all of these, these guys are going to go and do some pretty cool things. Um, and, yeah, the Gethsemane isn't the end of the story, all right? And when I'm watching stuff fall apart in front of my eyes, I've got to go back to that. Um, maybe it's not my failure. Maybe I've worked really hard. Maybe you've worked really, really hard on something. It's a kid you've invested in or your family or your career, and you're dropped from it at the end, or your kid walks away from the Lord, or your family doesn't seem to be getting along, and it's all falling apart, and all your work is crumbled in front of you. Go back to this place and trust in God with those things and not taking that on as a label. Um, I've got one thing, maybe two, for you to do with this. This is all I'm asking. I don't want to give you a lot of application. Um, I'll start with single folks, okay? It, all of you, really. Um, but have you adopted labels from those failures that you considered at the beginning of this message? Are there things that you believe or hold on to as true about yourself that need to be held subject to your identity in Christ first? And when you do that, maybe that label doesn't belong anymore. What labels are you still carrying? That's applicable to all of you. But, sorry, single people, that's the only one I have applicable to you right now. Um, parents. The other thing I want you all to do with this, parents, caregivers, um, I want you to just find a place today after this message and talk to your kids about this. Ask them what they're learning in kids' church. They do phenomenal work over there. Love that place. But consider in an age-appropriate way what it would look like to talk to your kids about failures and mistakes that you have in your past and how God has used those to shape you, to bring him glory. It, that's a very humbling discussion, but guys, I really want to stress that it's an important one, especially you dads. Especially you dads. I know we want to have this image of like, I am the perfect example for my kids, but that may hurt more than it is helpful because one day your kids are going to realize that you weren't perfect, no matter how well you hide it. And they're going to realize they can't be that either. They have a perfect father, and it's not us, okay, in this room. 
but your kids can learn from you, both you parents, but I'm, I'm really picking on the dads, because uh, I am one. Um, they can learn what it looks like to hold our mistakes and our sins subject to God and for him to use and not adopt them as part of our identity, but to say, Jesus, what are you going to do with this? We worship a redeeming God. Look at what he has done through the history and his word. Look at how he took something as crazy as sin, as wild and nasty as it is, and brought glory to himself by going to the cross and taking that for us. Look at what he can do with these people. Look at what he can do with scary situations like Joseph's in the Old Testament, or David in spite of his sin, or Simon in spite of his pride, or Mark in spite of his cowardice. What is he doing with us in spite of the mistakes we make? Okay? Um, that's my prayer for you guys as, as we go out here, that you, God would guide you into some you know, application or use for some of these lessons in his word. Um, I thank you for your attention this morning. Um, let's pray. We'll get you all going. Uh, Lord, thank you for your word. Um, I ask that you would give us uh, one uh, just, just recollection of how you've worked in our lives. That's, that's one of the easiest things for us to do is forget. Lord, give us a humility to um, admit mistakes that we've been afraid to admit. Um, and Lord, give us the courage to let go of those that, that we've been holding on to as central to who we are. Lord, help us hold all of these things and surrender to you. That you would be glorified, that you would prove uh, effective and powerful and working in our lives. And thank you, Lord, for what you've done in me, um, that, that my failures were not the end of my story, but God, you've used them. Thank you, God. Um, it's for your glory. Amen.